There are certain things in the church that become so familiar to us that it's difficult for us to imagine anybody living without them or doing it differently. If you've ever been to on a missions trip and you've seen the way other Christians in other countries do it, you maybe have experienced some of that. You and I gather multiple times a week. We open our Bibles. We all have one. We read it. It's in English. We take the time to explain it. And we try to structure our theology, our church practice, our everyday lives based on the words and the examples given to us there. We write songs that express those truths. We pray to the Lord using the words that the scriptures have given to us. And we hear that and we go, well, of course, how else would you do it? It seems so fundamental, we can't even consider doing it differently. But this has not always been the case in God's church. The translation of the scripture into a language you can understand. Corporate singing in the church. Pastors being married and having children. You taking the bread and the cup during communion. The doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. Inductive Bible study. All of that was lost in the church once upon a time. It wasn't even considered. If you compare how the church is depicted in the book of Acts, especially in chapter 2 when it describes all the things that they did when they gathered. If you were to take Peter, let's say, and fast forward him to the 16th century in the 1500s and drop him in Europe and have him go to church, I don't think he'd even recognize it. It's so incongruous as to be almost unbelievable. Like, what happened here? I don't recognize any of this. And I want to be clear that it was not all bad. From the time of the apostles to the Reformation, it was not all bad. There were some bright, shining lights in church history. God has always maintained a remnant. He's always been faithful. There have always been prophets and preachers. And there's always been people seeking the Lord and finding Him as His Word promised. But tonight, we're not going to focus on any of that. We're going to look at how it went wrong and how God came in and fixed it. So in order to do that, we're, we've got to fast forward by 1,500 years. So there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to mention very quickly that is important to know, but maybe we won't have time to get into. After the apostles died, the church was ravaged by persecution from Rome for hundreds of years. Until 313 AD, the emperor named Constantine converted to Christianity, and he sent out an edict called the Edict of Toleration, which said, you're not allowed to persecute Christians anymore. His descendants, from a few generations later, would make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Where it is no longer permissible to be a Christian, it is now compulsory. It's required to be a Christian. And the church in that new era would face challenges that they never faced before. Where now you can't really so much talk about the difference between the world and the church because every citizen of the empire is in fact a part of the church by default. Necessarily, that involves the church in political matters, because if every citizen is in the church, what the pastor says matters. If the king wants to go to war, if the king wants to pass a law, if the king wants to get something done, he needs to have his hands in the church, and that's what happened. And the distinction between church and state became so blurred as to be almost non-existent. Other things that happened during these years, you saw the rise of monasticism. When the church was like that... You can understand why folks who really wanted to seek God and find Him, 
they figure, well, where are we supposed to go? Everybody is in the church, and they began to go out on their own and become monks and nuns and form monasteries. Rome fell. The barbarian hordes came down from northern Europe and sacked Rome, but the church endured. In 1054 AD, there was a great schism between the Roman church and the Greek church, which endures to this day. Islam came about and began to conquer around the world. And this gave rise, among other things, I'm simplifying here, to the Crusades, to where now it's not just Christianity against Islam, it's the armies of Christianity versus the armies of Islam. And through those Crusades especially, the Pope, or as he was known before that, the Bishop of Rome, one pastor among many, rose to power equal to or greater than that of any potentate on earth, to the point where he even himself crowned Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor. And in the church, all manner of ungodliness and false teaching began to take root. I'm not going to get into that yet, but we're going to run into a lot of it as we move forward. I want you to imagine going to a church. You can't even understand what's being said because you don't speak the language. You've never read your Bible. Your priest tells you that your salvation is anything but certain. But if you'd like to make it certain, maybe a little money would go a long way to help that. You know, for all of our calls to revival today, and we need them, we need revival, okay? We were praying for that on Sunday night. But if you want to compare where the church is now to where the church was then, you can say, wow, looks like the revival already happened. The Reformation, I believe, is the greatest revival other than the first Pentecost that the world has ever seen. And we're still living in the, in the shadow of that. So tonight we're going to see the story of how God did this with looking especially at the men that God used and as well as the doctrines that they rediscovered that you take for granted but had to be reclaimed by some of these men. We're also towards the end going to look at the fallout and the consequences of the Reformation because the consequences of the Reformation were not all good. There is much that was lost and we should always be grieved when the church is divided. But that said, 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, 19, Paul wrote to the church and said, There must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul said, I believe that there's division, because if there's folks that are going to try and go away from the Word of God, and folks that are going to stick to the Word, there's going to be a division. So it ought to sober us in one sense that we look at this and, and realize God deemed it necessary to shatter his church into countless tiny little splinters in order to preserve his gospel. That's a sobering thing. God said, I'm going to take this unified church and I'm going to break it into so many pieces you can't even count them anymore. But at the same time, we ought to celebrate for those who've gone before us. And as I said, these were not perfect people. God doesn't use perfect people. God uses people full of faith, doesn't he? And we're going to thank God at the end that we can take such important matters for granted and that we don't have to be there wondering if salvation is by grace or not, that there have been godly men that have gone before us and already answered those questions. So let's go ahead and start the story. We're going to pick it up in 1414, and then we're going to back up a little bit. In 1414, a council met in Constance, Germany, a church council, for a couple reasons. One of them was to settle nearly 40 years of competing popes. There were two factions that each wanted their pope to be the pope. And so for several years you had two popes. So then a council got together and they said, neither one of you is pope, he's the pope. Well now you have three popes. 
So the Council of Constance gets together to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to figure all this out. But there was another reason that this council got together in the background of all that mess. And this is our look at some of the precursors to what we call the Reformation. There was a man who had started preaching in Bohemia who was said to be a disciple of a man named John Wycliffe. Now, John Wycliffe was an Englishman. And in 1382, all of his teachings had been condemned. He had written a book called The Truth of Holy Scripture, where he said that the Bible alone is the inerrant rule of faith, and it ought to be translated into the common language so the people can read it. He wrote a book called The Power of the Papacy, where he said if a pope is walking in immorality or in heresy, they ought to be deposed. We look at both those things and we go, well, duh. But at the time, this was considered not only wrong, but heretical. But he didn't listen. He translated the Bible into English. He started writing against the doctrine of transubstantiation until his death in 1384. Now, Wycliffe died, but his followers were called Lollards. And one of these guys was a man named Jan Hus. He was from Bohemia in Germany. He was the chancellor of the University of Prague. And he was called to the Council of Constance in 1415 because he had written a book with the Latin title De Ecclesia, which means about the church. And in that, he had written that Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. He also had said that the church is not so much a physical kingdom as a spiritual entity. And among other things, he had said we should be giving mass in both parts to the laity. At this point, it was said that only the priests and the other clergy were holy enough to take the wine and the bread during communion. He wrote and said the Bible doesn't say that, and we ought to be giving them both. He also said that no priest has the power to turn bread or wine into the body of Christ. Well, they brought him to Constance, and he was accused of heresy, and he declared, unless you can convince me from Scripture, I will not change my mind. Jan Hus was burned at the stake in 1415. His last name, Hus, you can almost hear it, it means goose in his language. And his last words, which I believe were very prophetic, he said, Today you are roasting a goose, but God will awaken a swan whom you will not burn nor roast. He's saying, you're getting me, but God is coming, and there's going to be somebody that you're not going to be able to put down. And this guy was such a popular teacher that there were riots in his home province of Bohemia that had to be put down by the army. You can see in both of those things, these were one men standing by themselves that were put down, but both of them were writing about the authority in the church. Where does authority for doctrine and practice come from in the church? At this point, you had conflict because you had the church as a whole, usually expressed through councils and things like that. You had the emperors, the kings, who, of course, as I said, were very tied into what was going on in the church by necessity. And, of course, the pope himself. Now, the Council of Constance, in addition to executing Jan Hus, they said, look, We've got to start getting some oversight in the church because this can't keep happening. So they decreed every five years the church is going to have a council to review what's been done, to review the Pope's behavior, to review new doctrine, and make sure that it's all on the up and up. Sounds like a good idea to me. The next Pope, Martin V, went along with that. He died in 1431, and the next Pope, Eugenius IV, shut down the councils. He said, we're not doing this anymore. I don't answer to anybody. And in 1460, I want you to hear how close these events are to one another. 1460, Pope Pius II declared that there was no council that held authority over the Pope, but that the Pope himself was the head and authority in the church. 
That had not been the doctrine until 1460. That's important to know because these were new innovations that were being attacked here. Two popes in particular would continue this process. They would expand the power. They would expand the, the wealth of the papacy. These were known as the Renaissance popes. And they saw the church, which was centered, of course, in Rome, as a new Roman Empire, with the pope at the center as the new emperor. Alexander VI became pope in 1492. The popes always take a new name when they're elected. He took the name Alexander, not after the famous theologian Alexander, after Alexander the Great, because he wanted to be mighty like Alexander was. Pope Julius II was known as the warrior pope. He was a bloody, violent ruler. He conquered nations, he conquered his enemies, he took their wealth, and he increased the opulence of Rome. He was the one that ordered the painting of the Sistine Chapel, which you might be famous with. The papacy was bought and paid for at this point. It was intrigue, it was espionage, assassination, deception. It was a soap opera. All going on during the Renaissance of the 13th century. The popes had mistresses, they had illegitimate children, but because you're the pope, you can declare your illegitimate child to be your legitimate child. So now he can succeed you and you can make him bishop or cardinal wherever you want. They lived decadent, indulgent lives, and the people started to get sick of it. This was very much in line with the rebirth, or the word you may be more familiar with, the Renaissance, which was happening in Europe, especially in Italy at the time. The new world had been discovered. Columbus had sailed and found America. Invention was expanding rapidly. The printing press had been invented in 1440. Knowledge was exploding. There was a renewed interest in the classical culture of Greece and Rome, partly because when Constantinople had fallen to the Ottoman Turks, they had said, you know what? We've got to get back to our own roots. This is where artists like Michelangelo and da Vinci started to blend those classical styles with those Christian themes. And it would be incorrect for us to view the Renaissance as only a secular movement. The world loves to claim that as like the first rebellion against Christianity. That's not totally true. Many people saw this as, all right, we've seen the warning, the writing on the wall that the, the Muslims are coming. We've got to get back to what God has said. And the dominant thought of the day was something called humanism with a capital H. This is not secular humanism as we think of it today. This was an emphasis on the humanities. Maybe you've taken that. It's art, it's literature, it's culture. So it's important to distinguish those things. And because of the interest of the humanists in the ancient sources, they wanted to go back. They wanted to read Plato. They wanted to read Aristotle. They wanted to read the Bible in its original languages. They started to discover that a lot of the laws that the Pope had passed were in fact based on lies and forgeries and not upon scripture at all. And many of them began to conclude, you know what, canon law is so suspicious, we really ought to only be looking at the Bible, not church tradition. In addition, you've got popes like Alexander and Julius damaging the reputation of the church by their immorality. And many of these nations, Germany, France, England, they look at the Roman church not as a blessing, but as an occupying power. Because this king is trying to rule his land, meanwhile he's got the pope over here who has, can hold heaven and hell over his people's head to try to get them to do what he wants to do. So there's this unrest that's happening at this point. You lead to guys like Desiderius Erasmus. Erasmus was the last, I'd say, forerunner of the Reformation. And his influence is definitive in church history. He began to teach that true Christianity is not just about doctrine and following the Pope, but it's about righteousness. 
and these popes seem to be in short supply of righteousness. Sexual immorality, ignorance were the norm among the, the priests. Even the priests didn't know how to read their own Bibles. And if the laity, if the normal Christians tried to object, there was violent torture waiting for them. So Erasmus wrote a play called Julius Exclusius, which is a play about the Pope Julius II who had died. And the, in the play, Julius goes up to St. Peter's Gate and Peter doesn't let him into heaven. You've got to imagine how serious it is to write something like that. That the Pope, who apparently is the vicar of Christ and the head of the church, wasn't allowed into heaven. It's these little subversive things that start to go out. In 1516, Desiderius Erasmus published an updated copy of the Greek New Testament. Up to this point, they were using Latin. He went back to the Greek and was the first one to publish it. He believed that a return to the scriptures would begin to expose the failures of the church, to bring about that needed change. Because resentment was brewing among the common people. Like Hophni and Phinehas in the book of Samuel, that the people despised the worship of the Lord because of them. But Erasmus was, was a calm person. He liked to be in the middle. He didn't like to make waves. So while he had all of the knowledge there to make it happen, he didn't have the personality to make it happen. Most people knew the church was in need of reformation. They had even tried but the papacy just kept getting stronger and stronger. So who would dare to stand against that? Well, let's go now to Germany, where in 1483, there was a man born named Martin Luther. This was the man the world was waiting for. And most of our story tonight, the story of the Reformation, is his story. Because he was right there every step of the way. He was the one leading the charge. Luther's father had been a miner for years. He had finally accumulated enough wealth to send Martin to law school. And then in 1505, Luther was caught out in a thunderstorm. He was so afraid that he was going to die, he cried out, not to God, he cried out to St. Anne, who was Mary's mother. And he said, if you get me out of this storm, I'll be a monk. You ever pray something like that to God? God, if you get me out of this. Well, he promised he'd become a monk. He did survive. So in July of that year, he left law school and he became an Augustinian monk in a city called Erfurt. Now Luther says, I'm going to be a monk and I'm going to be the best monk that the world has ever seen. I'm going to take this stuff seriously. I'm going to believe it and I'm going to go for it. Now a big part of not only a monk's life, but any Christian's life back then was you needed to make sure you made confession and not just confessing to the Lord, but in the proper place to the proper priest. So that way your sins could be forgiven. And if you didn't confess them properly, there was no guarantee they'd be forgiven. So Luther became very scrupulous as a monk, but he became very aware of his sin. The more he confessed, the more he realized how deep his own sin went. The more he sat and thought of other things he needed to confess, the more things he thought of. And his, his uh, leader of his monastery, a man named Johann Staupitz, even told him at one point, go away until you've got something interesting to confess. He couldn't get over it. He could never feel right in his soul because his thought was, if I don't confess any of these sins, I'm going to have to pay for them later in the hells of purgatory, so I better get this all out. But the more I think of it, the more I find, which means the problem is not my sin. The problem is me. So how could God possibly accept me ever? He started reading the old Christian mystics that were talking about the love of God and how much they loved Jesus Christ. But at one point he even wrote, I hated God. 
because I thought to myself, God tells us we've got to be righteous to be saved, but I can't be righteous, so God has given me an impossible task. God is not good, and God doesn't love me. Well, his superior, as I said, Staupitz, he tried to direct Luther to the love of God, but Luther wasn't getting it, so he says, you know what I'll do? I'll send him to school. I'll let him go become a theologian. He'll study. He'll learn the love of God, and that'll help hopefully balance him out a little bit. So in 1507, he became a priest and the professor of the Bible at the University of Wittenberg, Germany in 1512. And this is when the real revolution began. Luther began to lecture through the book of Romans at the university. And he came upon a verse that you have probably read dozens of times and never given a second thought. But he had never read it in the way that he read it this time. It was Romans 1.17 where it says, for in it, that is the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous, the just, shall live by faith. Now that word for righteousness is dikaiosune in Greek. It has to do with the idea of justice and righteousness, and that makes sense. Being just, being righteous are very close to being the same thing. And he realized he had been reading this verse saying that the justice of God is revealed, and if you're not just, then you don't get to partake of the gospel. That's how he'd always been taught that passage. But as he himself now began to read it as a teacher in order to teach it, studying the language, studying the context, studying what it actually said, he realized, as you see here, it's not saying that you must become just. It's saying that the justice or the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith and that the just shall live by faith. Not the faithful shall live by their justice or righteousness, but that it is faith that brings the righteousness of God to a person. He had been taught his whole life that God's justice demanded his own punishment and that he needed to labor in good works and penance, hopefully to chip away at the penalty that was due for his sin. And whatever was left over at the end, he would have to burn off in purgatory. He had to earn his own salvation, but he realized, maybe more than anybody else, the depth of his own sin. But instead, he realized that the righteousness of God is not held over our heads as a threat, but it's offered to us freely as a gift by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. It's not that God is going to make you come to him, but that God himself came down to us and offers us that grace freely by faith. And we hear that and we're like, that's so basic. That's so fundamental. That's so commonplace. To realize that the church couldn't give him salvation. He couldn't give himself salvation. Only God could give it, and that God had given it. Martin Luther said, as he wrote about this later, I felt that I had been born anew. Yeah, right? <laughs> John 3, you must be born again. And that the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of Scripture gained a new meaning. And from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, no longer filled me with hatred, but rather became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. Because no longer was he obsessed with his own sin, but he realized that God had given him his righteousness. And he could not only serve God, but love him too. And by 1515, Luther had solidified this doctrine. He was teaching it at the university. But he didn't see this as threatening to the church. He just saw this as a remarkable insight that maybe nobody had come across before. He was perfectly content to remain in his university teaching and writing books and 
growing old and going home to see Jesus. But it was the issue of indulgences that brought things to a head. In 1513, there was a man named Albert of Brandenburg, and he made a deal with Pope Leo. He said, I'd like to be a bishop of a third territory, please, which was against canon law. But he said, how about I pay you 10,000 ducats, which was the currency of the day? How about I pay you that, which is a sin called simony, called buying your own role as pastor or bishop in this case? Leo said, oh, that's fine, but where are you going to get the money? And Albert says, here's what I'll do. I'm going to sell indulgences in Germany to raise the money, and we'll split the profits together. What is an indulgence? At this time, the church was teaching that by becoming a Christian, being baptized, partaking in communion, that removes the eternal penalty of sin. But during your lifetime, you must perform acts of penance in order to take away the temporal penalty of sin. So if you've been baptized and you partake in communion, you, you get to go to heaven, but you still have to burn off the penalty of all the stuff you've done in purgatory. Now, if you do good things, those knock away some of those bad things. And what's a better thing than giving money to the church? So I'm going to sell you this piece of paper that if you give me money for it, that takes off time in purgatory. Or if you like, you can buy this indulgence, you can go off and sin, and that sin won't affect your eternal destiny anymore. You can see why they're called indulgences. The Pope Sixtus in 1460 had decreed the Pope is allowed to sell for money time off in purgatory, so to speak. In essence, they were paying or selling entry to heaven for anybody who paid the fee. Now, if you knew that if you paid $1,000, you could skip purgatory, I'd pay up, wouldn't you? And there is this guy, Johann Tetzel, Johann Tetzel. He was sent to Germany to sell indulgences, and he gained a reputation even outside of the reformers for his crass way of selling these things. He was not a scrupulous salesman. He had a little rhyme that he would use, and it even rhymes in German, I checked, but he would say, once a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You put your money in here, your mom won't be suffering in purgatory anymore. You're going to leave your dad suffering in hell and feeling the fires of purgatory? You give me 10 bucks, he can get out of there. This is what Johann Tetzel came to do. Now, the, the, the prince of the district where Luther lived in Saxony was a guy named Prince Frederick the Wise. He, he was on to this guy. He said, you're not going to come to my place and take my people's money and take it out of here. He had an economic problem with it. But Luther got angry because the people are like, well, if he's not coming here, we're going there. And he saw the people being exploited, and not only being exploited, exploited with false doctrine, with lies. And he was so angry, because not only are they paying money, but that money is going to go to pay for the Pope and his lavish lifestyle back home. So on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the door of the University of Wittenberg. This was 95 arguments against indulgences. That thing specifically. Now, this was not like a challenge to the Pope, like, hey, you're going to hear me on this. That was where they would post things. It was on the door of the church. That's where everybody went. But it was still a big deal. He said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a debate about indulgences. And here's my points. Here's 95 of my points. Who wants to come and debate these with me? But they were pretty, pretty extreme. Number 82 said this. 
If it's true that the Pope is able to free souls from purgatory, he ought to use that power not for trivial reasons, such as the building of a church, but simply out of love and freely. Because if you've got the power to set people out of purgatory, then what are you charging money for? He also goes in there and says, by the way, the Bible doesn't say anything about purgatory anyway, so this is probably a bad discussion. Well, somebody translated these into German and passed them out to everybody, which made Luther a national hero. Not so much a spiritual one, but a national one. Here's a German priest standing up against those Roman people coming to take our money away. And in 1518, I'm going to have to skip over a lot of this, but he goes to a place called Heidelberg where he's allowed to give an explanation of himself. And he goes into deeper issues. So not just talking about, about indulgences anymore, but going down into the doctrines of salvation by faith and all this. And this is when it first comes out into public that this is our challenge against the church. But he didn't see it that way. He sees it as like all these people are misrepresenting the Pope, misrepresenting the church. It's not fair. I'm going to handle it. I'm a doctor of the church. I'm a theologian. This is my job. He took his own theses and sent them to Albert, who was his bishop, and said, hey, here are some things that's been going on in your district. I'm sure you're not aware of it, but I I'm taking care of it. Don't worry. Even though that was the guy that had set the whole thing up in the first place. Well, Albert, remember, he had a plan with the Pope to raise this money. So he sends this thing to the Pope and says, some drunken German monk, that's what he called him, has written this, and he's messing up this whole thing. We're trying to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica, and he's messing it all up. So Rome released something called a Dialogue Concerning the Power of the Pope. It was an official reprimand, an official denial of everything Luther taught. Basically said, I'm the Pope, I can do whatever I want. So Pope Leo ordered Martin Luther to be arrested and to be examined, which means you can either recant everything you said or you can be burned at the stake. Which one do you like? But instead of coming to Rome, Prince Frederick, again, this guy was Luther's champion all the way through, he said, instead of going to Rome, how about you send somebody to Germany where it's a little more safe? So a cardinal named Cayetan came to Augsburg in 1518. He was there for a couple reasons. He needed to get tax money to go and fight the, the Ottoman Turks. They were still fighting these wars against the Muslims. And he's like, we've got to go and we've got to get some money. While I'm there, I'll handle this heresy thing real quick. Won't be a big deal. And Luther was told before he went into this meeting, he said, he's going to ask you, do you recant? You just say one word. You just say revoco in Latin. It means I recant and then that'll be it. Done and done. You can go home. Well, Luther goes in and rather than a five-minute meeting, he debated for three days with Cardinal Cayetan. Because he kept on saying, okay, I'm wrong. How am I wrong? You've got to show me from the Bible. You've got to show me from somewhere that this is wrong. He's demanding scriptural proof. And Cayetan said this. He said, the Pope is above any council and also above Holy Scripture. Now, that's a big deal. Now, you remember Johann Staupitz, who was the Augustinian monk over Luther. And they said, listen, you've got to send your guy who's under your authority, you've got to send him to Rome so that we can hand him over to the Inquisition. Staupitz said, okay, before I do that, Luther, I hereby release you from your vows to the Augustinian monks. Oh, now I don't have any authority over Luther anymore. I guess I can't send him after all. <laughs> so he's got some guys in his team. You see how this is going. Well, he says, you know what? This is ridiculous. I'm not doing these backdoor meetings. We need to have a general council. We'll get all the bishops together. We'll discuss this. And in March 3rd, he wrote a letter saying, hey, I'm all for the Pope. I'm all for Rome, but we've got to get these issues handled. 
And he led to something, skipping ahead here again, called the Leipzig Disputation, where Rome sent a theologian to go and debate him. The guy's name was Johannes Eck. And Eck was a really good debater, because he didn't really care to debate the issue. His only job was to draw out all of these radical ideas that he knew Luther had. So this was the first place where Luther finally comes out and says, yes, Scripture trumps canon law. Yes, the Pope can be wrong. And yes, the church councils can be wrong. To which he says, well... I don't really have anything else to say then. If you believe that, you're obviously a heretic. So at that point, Luther has publicly acknowledged himself the first Protestant, you might say. And it's no going back. Up to 1520, he begins to write books that are further defining his position and further breaking with Rome. And not only were they written in Latin, which was the academic language of the day, but he wrote them in German and he handed them out to the people. So now the average person is reading this, and they're getting on board with it, and they're starting to resent Rome too. He wrote a couple books, important ones. One was called On the Papacy of Rome. He argued the church is not a physical organization. It's a spiritual family, and that for the pope to claim infallibility, he said, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. He wrote one called The Address to the German Nobility. He said, German rulers, you ought to cast off the papal authority, and we'll reform our church here. And he wrote one, this is the biggest one, called On the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. He said that the church was using the threat of heaven and hell, using the sacraments to hold people captive and keeping them from coming to God. It was his most open attack against the actual established church to that date. And there was a lot to Luther's theology we could get into, but these were the biggest ones that were hot buttons in his day. Papal authority, the nature of the church, the supremacy of Scripture, and salvation by grace through faith alone. Well, it was only a matter of time. On June 15, 1520, the Pope wrote a, it's called a papal bull at that time, called Exerge Domine, in which he officially excommunicated Martin Luther. Well, that is, you've got 60 days to recant or we're excommunicating you. Martin Luther got it, went out into Wittenberg Square, and publicly burned it. Desiderius Erasmus, when he heard about this, he said, Luther has committed two sins. He grasped the Pope's crown and the monk's bellies. He's like, finally, there's a guy who's got enough guts to step out and do this. Now, I mean, we're going to introduce another important character here. Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. Germany was part of that that empire, which no longer exists today. He had the responsibility of executing that order. So the Pope had excommunicated him. It was the emperor's job to actually take care of Luther. But again, Frederick the Wise intervenes, and he said, look, the, all the princes are getting together. It's sort of like Congress at this point. It was called a diet. We don't really use that word, but at a city called Worms. It's spelled like worms, so it looks like it says diet of worms. It's not some weird vegan thing. It's, you know, means like a meeting in a city called Worms in 1521. So Charles V says, remember, these, these kings are always like rubbing shoulders with the Pope here. They're like, no, you don't get to call one of my citizens out. I'm going to bring him to my meeting of my princes and we'll evaluate his case ourselves. You can send an envoy. That's fine. So on April 16th of that year, Martin Luther rides into the city with a hundred nobles riding with him, and all the people came out to greet him and cheered him as he walked into the city. But the next day he goes up, and he's supposed to have this big disputation, this debate before the emperor to determine about what his teachings were. Instead, the envoy from Rome only had two questions for him. They laid out all his books on the table, and they said, Did you write all this? Yes. Do you recant what you wrote here? 
not giving him a chance to discuss it or debate it, simply putting the question to him. So Luther had not prepared for that. He expected to have a debate, expected to have to make a defense. So he asked for 24 hours to ponder his answer. A lot of people say, oh, Luther got scared. He didn't want to. That's not exactly what happened, but takes 24 hours, comes back the next day, and he gives a long answer. He's like, look, that book right there, that's a book of devotion like for families. If I recant that, all of a sudden I'm a heretic. I wrote this one over here. That was addressing this heresy that this guy had, and everybody acknowledges that that's a heresy. I can't recant that. So he's trying to, you know, get to that disputation, but they kept pushing him. He says, you've just got to answer us. Do you recant your doctrines, Martin Luther? And he gave this famous answer, which you might have heard before. He said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor wise to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That was pretty much the end of any making nice between Martin Luther and Rome. Charles V gave him permission to go home and wait for a verdict. The government was afraid to arrest him right on the spot because the people, remember, were so solidly behind Luther, they were afraid of rebellion. And we're going to see in a little bit, they were right to be afraid of that. So they kept on offering him compromises. What, what about if we give you some land? What about if we give you some money? What about you only recant some of it? What if you just go away and don't print anymore? He rejected all that. So officially, on May 25th, 1521, Martin Luther was declared an outlaw. And they said, if anybody finds him or harbors him or takes care of him, they're going to get burned at the stake too. Once again, Frederick the Wise, the prince of Luther's district, stepped in. And Luther was kidnapped on May 4th. A bunch of people took him on the road, took him away without anybody knowing what was going on, and they kept him alive. From May 1521 to March 1522, they kept him in hiding at a place called the Vortberg Castle. He grew out his hair long. He would have had that monk's thing where it only went around the edge. Grew his hair long, grew a beard. He started going by Junker George. Junker means knight, so he was pretending to be a knight named George. And during that time, during that more than a year that he was there, he translated the entire Greek New Testament into German. That same New Testament that Erasmus had compiled and brought together, he translated it into German. And it was published in Wittenberg in 1522, and it sold out immediately. And by 1534, of course, skipping ahead, he would have translated the entire Bible into the common language, which was, of course, illegal at the time. Now, while he's here for more than a year, the Reformation back in Wittenberg was picked up by two of Luther's friends and colleagues. One guy was named Philip Melanchthon, and one was named Andreas Karlstadt. Melanchthon would become a hero of the Reformation. He would go on to write the first systematic theology of Protestantism. He would write the Augsburg Confession, which we're going to talk about later. And he remained Luther's closest friend throughout his whole life. And Luther wanted Melanchthon to take his lead while he was gone, but he was a timid man. And he was kind of afraid to step out there and be the leader. Karlstadt stepped up, and he was more radical than either Melanchthon or Martin Luther. He began to take all of these ideas that Luther had and began to accelerate them and even to go way beyond where he should have. He celebrated Mass dressed up as a peasant in German. He married openly, and he began to rouse the people to rise up against Rome 
They began to disrupt services. They began to rip up stones and throw them at priests. They began to destroy churches. They began to go in and rip apart all the articles of worship and the pews and everything. Then Karlstadt gets in with these guys named the Zwickau Prophets. They came from a place called Zwickau, and they said that we have received inspiration from the Lord. We've seen visions of the end of the world, and God has given us authority to lead this Reformation. And they began to lead to all kinds of crazy stuff that I'm not going to get into right now. So Melanchthon begs Luther to come back, and he finally did. Frederick didn't want him to, but he's like, you've got to come back. So Luther comes back, and I mean, it's Martin Luther. They're not listening to Karlstadt anymore. So he restores calm, and he would eventually reconcile with Andreas Karlstadt, but he kind of opened up a can of worms that was very hard to get back in the box. And as you can see, Luther's ideas... While he was very thoughtful and biblical and prayerful as how he did it, it had some unforeseen consequences because his message of casting off Rome and casting off Roman authority, if you're a beaten down peasant who works for the Lord nearby or works for this prince and has to fight when he tells you to fight and die when he tells you to die and you've got to send all your stuff to him, if somebody comes along telling you that you don't have to listen to Rome for one reason, well, why should I listen to any of these people at all? And it led to what was called the Peasants' Rebellion in Germany. There was a guy named Thomas Munzer, who, you know the famous solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura, sola fide. He said the only rule of doctrine is what he called sola experientia. If you haven't experienced it for yourself, you can't claim it as doctrine. So he had his own weird ideas and his own dreams and visions that were making all this strange new theology. He called himself the hammer and the sickle of God. And he led a revolt in 1525 where he led all these peasants into battle against these soldiers. Six to 7,000 peasants were killed that day. Only six soldiers died. He was found hiding in an attic and they impaled his head on a pike for that. And Luther was writing this thing called the admonition to peace where he was calling for the nobles to treat the peasants fairly, be kind to them, but he's also telling the peasants, God has placed this authority over you and you shouldn't be rebelling like that. But they didn't listen to him. They continued to rebel. They were ripping castles down. They were destroying monasteries and executing the monks. They were taking over whole towns. Eventually, in that peasants' rebellion, over 100,000 people would die. Now, Luther was against all that. But you know that reality and perception are sometimes two different things. And many people became embittered against Martin Luther and the Protestants at this point because that guy's just getting people killed. He's just, he's an anarchist. He wants people to rise up and tear down the structure. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about the scripture. He's a liar. It's unfortunate. Because in those days, there was no separation of church and state. The two worked in tandem with one another, which is why if you read about Luther's things that he did and what he said, you're like, this seems so political. There was no avoiding it at this point. Because the emperor had authority in the church, and the bishop of the church had authority in the political sphere. So it was all tied together. It was a big mess. And many rulers, they see the Reformation as disruptive of the peace and the order of their, of their land. So they're like, then we're not having this. We're not bringing this in here because we just saw 100,000 Germans get killed. So I don't want Lutheran theology here. But you've got other folks that will say, I'm going to let the Reformation in because this is my chance to finally get the Pope off my back. I can finally do things the way I want to do them. And so you begin to see that all of Europe begins to erupt in various rebellions and put-downs of rebellions, and blood is being shed. If we skip ahead a little farther, we get to 1529. Remember Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor at the time. He had been 
defeating all of his enemies. He went through Rome. He sacked Rome. He defeated the king of France. And he comes back to German, this conquering hero, this man who had just authoritated himself over the pope. And he says, my German people are going to stop rebelling against Catholicism because this is the way I want it and this is the way it's going to be. That was in 1529, Inspire Germany. And that was when the five princes, including Frederick the Wise, issued a formal protestatio against that rule. And that protestatio, that protest that they filed, is where we get the word Protestant from. Because they had been saying, look, if it's your territory, you can be Protestant or Catholic. You decide. Emperor comes back and says, no, everyone's going to be Catholic. And they say, well, I protest against that. And that's where that term comes from. In 1530, Charles comes back to Augsburg, and Melanchthon drafted what was called the Augsburg Confession. This was, and is considered still today, kind of the definitive manifesto of what it means to be a Protestant. Salvation by grace through faith, the authority of the Scriptures, all that. And Charles demanded that they recant. They refused, of course. And at this point, the Protestant princes formed their own alliance. It was called the Schmalkald League. I love these German words, the Schmalkald League. And they said, if we've got to fight against our Catholic emperor, we're going to do it. But in this case, it's almost fortunate that the Ottoman Turks, the Muslim armies, attacked again. Because Charles was forced to leave. This is what kept happening. I realize this is getting kind of twisted. But what you need to understand is the emperor would go away to fight France or Rome or the Turks or whoever. And while he's gone, the Protestants are gaining ground and they're spreading their doctrines and their teachings. He comes back and wants to put a stop to it. They dig in their heels. Now he's got to go back out again. And he needs their help because they're supposed to support him in this war. So it's forcing him to make compromises with the Reformation, even though he didn't want to. Wars were fought over this for, for decades, and I'm having to skip over a lot of them, until 1555, where finally, at, the, at Augsburg again, different time, but they established a principle which in Latin says, quius regio, eius religio, means if it's your land, your religion. <laughs> if you're the prince of your land, you can decide to be Catholic, you can decide to be Protestant. Other than that, we're just going to back off. And that's really about as good as it was going to get for Luther in Germany when the emperor decided he's just going to back off and not going to enforce anything. And it took th that long. Luther himself would live out the rest of his life as an outlaw. He was excommunicated, but by everybody else in Germany, they didn't care about that. And he knew that the church was more than just what some wicked man in Rome had to say. He got married in 1525. The former monk married a former nun named Katharina von Bora. She was a bit of a character, if you ever get a chance to read up on her. They were married for 21 years and had six children. This is another mark of the Reformation, that the dignity and the nobility of marriage was restored. That it wasn't just something you did in order to secure your own lands or to have children. It's like, no, this is a wonderful, beautiful thing that God has introduced. He wrote new hymns for use in the church. There was no congregational singing until Martin Luther returned it to the church. And, of course, he wrote prolifically. And as we wrap up talking about Martin Luther here, I do want to mention a few things. There were a lot of stuff he did that was not admirable and that you do not want to imitate. David was a great man of God, but he did have that episode with Bathsheba. And Luther had a few things that we look at and we go, oh, come on, man. You were doing so well. Where did this come from? He was skeptical about a couple books of the Bible. 
He called James an epistle of straw. He called Revelation a dumb prophecy. <laughs> but he included them in his New Testament, which was important. And famously, well, he put James in the appendix of his Bible. That was in the first edition. When they released the second edition, he actually did include it in the text itself, which is good. <laughs> and you can see why he would have reacted to that. It doesn't excuse it, but he was writing about grace through faith. James is the one that shows up and says, faith without works is dead. And so you can see Luther was so caught up in his own reaction to his own time, he couldn't allow the scripture to balance himself out. He also wrote towards the end of his life, and this is probably the worst of it, he wrote a book called On the Jews and Their Lies. Doesn't that make you just cringe in your seat a little bit? In which he advocated violent action against the Jews, which was ridiculous because earlier in his life he had written a book called Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew. And it was all about how we ought to love our Jewish brothers and we ought to pray for them and God's going to restore them one day. But he gets to the end of his life and he writes that. The unfortunate thing is that even the Nazis would come in later and they'd say, see, even Martin Luther was on board with getting rid of the Jews. Luther was a cantankerous old man. I mean, you can see early, even early in his life, I mean, he was a bit of a bullheaded dude. Now he gets old. He, he suffered from chronic kidney stones, chronic constipation, hemorrhoids, and persistent anxiety and depression for decades and decades. And what almost all these biographers have said that Nothing really made this dude happy at the end of his life. And he started writing all kinds of nonsense that he shouldn't have written, which is unfortunate. And he died on February 18, 1546. And the last word that he had was a confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Martin Luther had some stuff that he did that really makes me upset when I sit and think about it. But you know who he was? Let me, this is how I see it. Martin Luther was the cannonball that God used to break through the walls that had been built up. Maybe somebody like Erasmus would have been a little more tactful and a little more balanced. But you didn't need somebody like that. You needed somebody whose forehead was hard enough that he could bang it against the wall and knock it down. So that later on, somebody could come behind him and refine what he did. But I want to make this very clear. Without this guy, there would have been no reformation. And that man went home to a glorious welcome in heaven. And I'm glad that the Lord is willing to use such flawed people because I know that I am one of those flawed people. And I can only pray that I have as much faith as that guy did. Let's look at some other things here. Because Martin Luther, as I said, his story is kind of the story of the Reformation. He was the first one there. He was the bull in the china shop that the Pope had set up. But there are other men, other giants of this time, without whom the church would not be what it is today. One man was a, was a Swiss guy named Ulrich Zwingli. There's a name for you. Ulrich Zwingli. He was born in a place called Wildhaus, Switzerland. And he was heavily influenced by Erasmus. Particularly in Erasmus' teaching about the primacy of Scripture. And he began, before Luther had done anything, to teach verse by verse in his church. They called it Lectio Continua back then. And he gained a great reputation. People would come from miles around to hear him just teach the Bible. And he ran his own indulgence cellar out of town. In 1518, he was appointed the priest in Zurich, where he preached in the Swiss language, verse by verse through the Bible, starting in 1519. He was a vocal critic of the corruption in the church. In 1522, there were some people that had been jailed because they were eating sausage during Lent. And he shows up and his defense was, the Bible never says you can't do that. And they were actually released 
because of his influence. He also pushed to allow the clergy to marry. He got married himself in 1524. And during a couple years in, in Zurich, he had three different public disputations where he advocated for Protestant positions on marriage, on salvation, and scripture. And that led the Zurich City Council to actually go along with him and say, all right, we're going with you. He rejected the authority of the Pope. He rejected the Mass in only one kind. He rejected works-based salvation, intercession of the saints, penance, and purgatory. He declared that if you can't find it in Scripture, you shouldn't have it as a doctrine. This actually led him farther than he ought to have gone by not allowing any organs or violins or music in the church. I don't see violins in the Bible. And he actually restricted communion to four times a year because he said, I don't want to take anything away from the preaching of the word. In 1525, Zurich became a Protestant city under his leadership. And what's crazy about that, he didn't even know who Martin Luther was until 1519. God was doing the same thing in two different people in two totally different places and bringing them to the same conclusions. It's remarkable what happens when you open up your Bible and you just read it. Now, Zwingli had his own issues. He was intimately tied together with the civil government, and he did not see their separation as even necessary. And he would order the deaths of several heretics and several Anabaptists, who he saw as differing from him, having them tortured and even killed. And that's unfortunate, because we look at that and like, how could you do that? But it's also important to remember that, while it doesn't excuse it, everybody did that at this point. That was how civil justice was meted out. And remember how closely tied the church and the state were at this point. He actually met Martin Luther in 1529, and they had a list of 15 points that they wanted to discuss. They could agree on 14 of them. The only one they could not agree on is transubstantiation. Luther believed in what he called the spiritual real presence of Christ in the, the bread and the cup. He said it doesn't literally become the body and blood of Jesus, but he's really there. That actually, you can refer to it as that. Ulrich Zwingli comes along and says, that's not what the Bible says, though. The Bible just says it's bread and cup, and it helps us remember. And that actually became the point of division between these two men. And we look at that, and we go, really? That? That's what you fought over? Believe it or not, that issue was the issue that most people died for during the Reformation, was whether or how present Christ was in the Eucharist, in the bread and the cup. Well, in 1530, Zwingli was wounded in an attack on Zurich, and when the Catholic Swiss people found him, they killed him, quartered his body, and burned it because he had been the one that had led the Swiss people away from the Catholic Church. There's another guy named Jean Calvin. You might know him as John Calvin. He was a Frenchman, born in 1509, so he's younger than these other two guys. And it's not exactly known when he became a Protestant, but in 1534, his dad had bought for him two, two uh, parishes where he was not doing any preaching at these churches, but he was receiving all the money for these churches. That's how it worked back then. But he said, I'm not going to do that. He said, I'm going I'm to become a Protestant. I'm going to be a Lutheran. And he had to flee France in 1535 because the French Protestants, the Huguenots as they were called, were being massacred by the, the Catholic kings. And he began to write a book in 1536 called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is a very basic discussion of the doctrines of the faith written from a Protestant perspective. And it was an immediate bestseller. 
It gained him international attention because it was they printed it in this tiny little format that you could fit in your pocket, and it was smuggled all throughout Europe, and he became one of the best-read people of that time, or the most read. And over the years, he would expand that book throughout his life through six editions, and it is still read and studied widely today. In 1536, though, he said, I'm going to go to Germany. I'm going to Strasbourg because I want to be where Luther is, and I want to be doing what they're doing over there. But along the way, he stopped at a place called Geneva, which was a Protestant city. And when a man named William Farrell, who was one of the, the Christians there, heard that the author of the Institutes is here, he went and saw him and he says, uh, you need to stay here and be our pastor. You need to be our teacher because we need you. We're all Protestants, but we don't really know how to handle this doctrine yet. He says, no, thank you. I'm on my way to Germany. And William Farrell said this to him. This is a quote. Well, may God condemn your repose and the calm you seek for study if before such a great need you withdraw and refuse your help. He says, if you, you want to go off to Strasbourg where you can calmly and nicely write your books and you see us here, may God condemn your break, pal. Well, he decided to stay. Now, the city of Geneva itself didn't really care about the religion as long as the money kept flowing in. So the, the church said, hey, we're going to be Protestants now. And the government said, yeah, sure, whatever. So Calvin had more opportunity to work out Protestant theology than any of these other guys had. He stayed for a couple years until 1538 when he tried to excommunicate somebody, and the city council said, no, the pastor doesn't get to do that. The city council gets to do that. He says, fine, I'm leaving. So he finally went to Strasbourg. <laughs> and he stayed there until the Genevans actually called him back and said, you've got to come back. You can't, you can't leave us like this. So he came back. He said, fine, I'm coming back, but there's a few conditions. He wrote something called the Ecclesiastical Ordinances. And he said, this is what I see as biblically should be the role of the church and the state in the city of Geneva. And the council really could, had no choice. They had to agree to it. And over time, you could call the council whatever you wanted. John Calvin was, in fact, the ruler of Geneva. And his ecclesiastical ordinances restructured the church into what became the foundation of Presbyterian church government, which is a government through elders in the church. Really quickly, he broke it down like this. The church council had 12 elders, five ordained, seven not ordained. And he divided up the ministry in four ways. Number one, he had elders. Their job was to oversee the religious life of the people to maintain the morality of the church. Number two, he had pastors. Their job was to preach in the church and to administer the sacraments. Number three, he had teachers. Their job was to teach the doctrine, to, to hone the theology. And number four, he had the deacons who handled the social aspect, the practical ministry of the church. Very organized, very biblical in a lot of ways too. Now, this was over the church, but remember, every citizen was required to be a member of the church. So he had authority over everybody in that city. Now, Calvin had his issues, too, and they were similar to the ones that Zwingli had. In 1553, there was a man named Michael Servetus who came to Geneva. He had publicly denied the Trinity, and so the Catholics had ran him out of town, and he said, I'm going to go to Geneva. They're Protestants. They hate Rome. They won't mind. Well, he shows up, and Jean Calvin's like, we're not just anti-Rome, we're pro-Scripture, and you're anti-Trinity. So he ordered him to be killed, and he was, in fact, executed at the orders of Jean Calvin. I think what we see there, these guys were men of their time. It was very hard for them to get out of the idea in their head that, no, you don't execute people as the pastor of the church. And it's, it's unfortunate that these guys were able to see past so many things, but they couldn't get past that, and it would take a very long time. 
But what we can see is how committed this guy was to doctrine. This, John Calvin was really the thinker of the Protestant church. Luther was too, and so was Vingley, but Luther was the, the revolutionary. He was the one out in front knocking heads together and making it happen. Zwingli was the one at home. He was working out a lot of the practical aspects, being really bullheaded on the insistence of Scripture, while Calvin is in Geneva at peace, not fighting against anybody, and he has the time to work out a lot of that theology. Now, we hear Calvinist, and we think of predestination, we think of election and limited atonement. But really, back in that day, to be a Calvinist meant that you believed in the spiritual work in the heart during communion. Luther, remember the spiritual presence of Christ. Zwingli was saying, no, it's just a memorial of Christ. Calvin was somewhere in the middle. He said, Christ himself is not in the bread and the cup, but Christ is present in a special way in your heart during communion. And we hear that and we go, again, really? That's the big issue? That was the big issue. And these are the issues that the Lutherans, the Calvinists, and the Zwinglians would be killing each other over after these three men died. These were the three great reformers. They're called the magisterial reformers, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. And their ideas would leave an incredible impression on Western culture. But as we get to the end, I want to point out some more things here because it wasn't just these guys. There was a lot of stuff going on. None of these reformers saw themselves as dissidents. None of them wanted to say, let's break away from Rome. They wanted to restore the church to her rightful state. But what happened, as we saw, was as these guys preached, it got into the hearts of these people, and they took it far beyond doctrine and church life to the political life of these kingdoms. And you began to see uprisings and rebellions, and you began to see all kinds of crazy radical movements. And one of the most radical in Europe was called the Anabaptist movement. The Anabaptists were called that. Anabaptist means to rebaptize. They were saying, if you are baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, your baptism is illegitimate. You have to be rebaptized or you cannot be saved. And that was not the only thing they got into. I've got to skip into some of this stuff. But most Protestants saw this as subversive and treasonous. Because you're, you're going to come in here and you're going to say that your baptism is illegitimate because you, even though you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so Anabaptists were not welcome anywhere, especially because in 1532, they took over the city of Munster. And we've talked about this not long ago, but these, the leader of this group was a Melchiorite. There had been an Anabaptist named Melchior Hoffman who said that he was the new Elijah of the last days and that God was going to set up a new Jerusalem in Germany and that Christ is going to return in 1533. Well, he didn't. So in the city of Munster, there was a man, another Anabaptist named Jan Mathis. And he said, no, no, actually it's 1534. It's supposed to be 1533. It's one year later. We were just a little bit off. And he said, this city, Munster, is the new Jerusalem. That's what the Bible says, right? Well, the people made him ruler of the city, and he declared that all property in the city was forfeit to himself. And those who did not to submit to him were killed immediately. There was one blacksmith, one blacksmith that said, hey, I'm not submitting to you. I don't know who you are. And Jan Mathis himself killed that guy. And the Anabaptist, the radical Anabaptist took over. Well, immediately, of course, the government surrounded the city. Jan Mathis died. 
because he said, I have had a vision that our armies are invincible against that army out there. And they went out to fight and he was killed. Then, this is when things got really dark and crazy. His, his successor, John Lydon, became the new leader. And all of this stuff that these guys were into was all about visions and ecstatic experiences. And he was in a trance for three days in which he was running naked through the city streets, claiming he was having a vision of God, during which he said, I've received new authority from God. And if you do not obey me, you're going to be killed. He instituted polygamy in the city, saying that if the population grows fast enough, it'll hasten the second coming. He gathered a harem of 16 women. And one woman, who he was trying to add to his harem, refused his advances and he had her beheaded. And then in 1534, they were able to push back and attack when the besiegers came at them. And he said, I am the king of righteousness. I am the Messiah. And he began to rule with what he called the 12 elders of Israel until eventually even the Protestants got on board with the Catholics to put this guy down. Both sides were horrified at what was going on. The city ran out of food. The people in the, in the city turned to cannibalism until finally they opened up the gates to the army. And in 1535, that guy, John of Leiden, was put in an iron cage and his skin was pulled off with red-hot irons. And if you go to that city today, as I've said before, they still have the cage hanging from the church to remind everybody about what happens when you dissent. This was the extreme extent of the Reformation. It's also why Baptists and Anabaptists were not welcome in most places of Europe because they had this story in their mind. Luther had restored truth to the church, but he also had opened up the possibility for other people to dispute against the church too, and it didn't always go well. And you know, initially, many Catholics were sympathetic to the Protestant cause because they said, the church needs Reformation. This has to happen. Erasmus would debate Luther on some things. He would never leave the church himself, but he never went after the, the, the jugular of those issues. He's like, no, he's actually right on a lot of this stuff. But what happened is Pope Paul IV, after Leo died, he led a group of people called the Zelanti. These were those who opposed the Reformation. And he took steps in the 1550s to halt Protestantism. He published a list of prohibited books, which banned most Protestant writings. Every scripture translation was ordered to be burned. Even some of the church fathers' writings, like Augustine, were ordered to be burned because they were given credence to the, the Protestants. In 1542, the Roman Inquisition was authorized in Italy to go after Protestants. Normally this was for other heretics, but now anybody who was a Protestant would be tortured and eventually executed in order to put them down. There was a man named Ignatius of Loyola who formed the Jesuit movement, and their services were offered to the Pope as soldiers of God. Their job was to cut down the Protestant church. Ignatius said at one point, if we wish to proceed securely in all things, we hold fast to the following principle. What seems to me white, I will believe black if the church so defines. I'll believe anything if the church tells me. You see the polar opposite here. And these methods went on for years. The Reformation kept going. It kept going. There was no official response from Rome until 1545. And I'm having to wrap this up here. The Council of Trent was Rome's official response to the Protestant Reformation. And it went on for almost 20 years at different eras and different times. And the Council was not really open to Protestants. 
Now, the whole point of this was supposed to be, let's get all the church together, let's hash this stuff out. The Jesuits were keeping the Protestants out. And their goal, they said, was to root out heresy, which, of course, was a reference to the Reformation itself. And this is when some of the church's positions were formalized. This is when they added what's called the Deuterocanon. This is when they asserted that Scripture, church tradition, and present revelation are equal authorities. The Pope is equal to Scripture. Tradition is equal to Scripture. And they said anybody who holds to justification by faith alone or who denies the role of works in salvation is anathema. They affirmed the seven sacraments, the doctrine of transubstantiation. They formally, for the first time, articulated the doctrine of purgatory, the intercession of saints, the sale of indulgences. And when the Protestants were finally allowed in 1552, they had already decided all those things. And it was either you join with us or you're going to the Inquisition. The Council of Trent were the official divorce papers of the church, December 4th, 1563. There was no going back after that. Now, Trent did handle a lot of important moral issues. You know, it was no longer proper for anybody to buy their bishopric. Sexual immorality was cracked down on. There was an increased effort towards education of the church. But it was really unfortunate that rather than receiving what Luther and these guys had said, they said, we're going to fix some of these issues, but we're not going to go back to the root issues that caused all of these problems in the first place. Europe had religious wars until 1648. Remember, this all started in 1517. This conflict lasted until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, when pretty much it said every country can sort it out for themselves. Rome agreed to back off. This is when there was religious fatigue in the church. They were tired of fighting over doctrine. They were tired of dying over Christianity. It brought peace to the church, but it also paved the way for the Enlightenment and the secularism that we see today. You can say that the Enlightenment, which was David Hume and all those guys arguing against the existence of God and against miracles and all those things, part of that was a reaction to the violence that had been taking place within the church for over 100 years. And I could skip ahead, but it's important for me to mention some of this. Henry VIII, who was the King of England, announced a separation from Rome. He says, I'm going to become a Protestant nation. Why? Because Rome wouldn't let him get divorced. So Protestants say, oh, look, England is the first Protestant country. Let's go there. So especially Calvinists came to England. Men like John Knox and William Tyndale, they led a great revival in England. But Henry VIII was not really interested in changing any doctrine. He just wanted to be his own boss. It led to massacres and civil war in England until you got to... There to be two divisions in England. You had the Anglican Church, which was essentially the Catholic Church by another name, and the Puritans, who were so called because they insisted on the purity of Protestant doctrine, the purity of the Word of God. And they were chased out of England until many, of course, you know this story, came to the New World. They came to America. This is who the pilgrims were. Came to Massachusetts in 1620. Why? Because they had been chased out of every country in Europe, especially England. And they said, we're going to go to a place where there's nobody, where we can worship the Lord according to the scriptures. And this, do your own homework. It led eventually to the American Revolution, the Bill of Rights, the separation of church and state. And to this very day, we still see the Protestant spirit at work. We're here striving for originalism. What does the Bible say? What does the Word teach us? What happened in the early church? Not what, what was built up over hundreds of years. What was original? 
And this unfortunately has led to the fracturing of the church, not only into Protestant and Catholic, but into countless smaller and smaller denominations. But what conclusions can we draw from all of this? I'm going to summarize very quickly the theology of this movement, which we've been through before. What did we get from all this? Number one, these are Latin terms, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The ultimate standard for belief and behavior is the Bible. Everything else must be held to that standard. Nothing wrong with tradition as long as it's standing on that foundation. Number two, sola gratia. Salvation is the sovereign work of God, grace alone. We do not earn our salvation. We can't earn our salvation, but it's the work of God. Number three, sola fide, faith alone. Salvation is received only by faith, not through works. Number four, solus Christus, Christ alone. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ, not through the saints, not through Mary, not through the Pope or anybody else. There's no other religion on earth that can provide salvation. And lastly, soli Deo Gloria. All for the glory of God, not for the glory of man, not for any empire, not for any pope or any such thing. There were other important doctrines that we've discussed, but these were the important things. Now, we ought to be sobered by the shattering of the church. But we also need to remember that all of these things that we take so for granted, all the assurance of salvation that you get, every time you said, Lord, I thank you that you bought me with your blood and you saved me by your grace. Every time you've heard an altar call with a pastor standing up and saying, you can be saved today if you put your faith in Christ, that was lost and recovered through this messy process that we just went through. And then we ought to be full of joy. <laughs> There's a lot you could learn from this, but at the very least we can say, the Lord brought revival to His church, and it was messy. It was mighty, and it was messy. And it's a great story. It's our story. Church history is our history. And it also can send a reminder to us personally today that the Lord can use messy people too, to do mighty things. doesn't mean we should just ignore the things that we get wrong, but it should remind us that there's grace to cover all that when the Lord is doing His work.